You're listening to We're Talking About Practice Podcast, Episode 4. Today, we're talking about basketball decision training, or BDT, with Coach Oliver. So what is BDT? It's the ability for your players to make the right decision in a split second. And how important is that? So Coach Oliver argues that's the most important skill players actually need, as opposed to actually just the ability to do a drill over and over again. So if that's interesting to you, let's get started. We just talk about practice. We sitting here, I'm supposed to be a franchise player, and we in here talking about practice. I mean, listen, we talking about practice. Coach Chris Oliver here. Uh, he's a head coach of uh, Windsor Lancers men's basketball program, a three-time OUA men's basketball coach of the year. He's also a breakthrough basketball camp director. Welcome, uh, Coach Oliver. Happy to be here, Keith. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell, tell us uh, about Basketball Emergent, this website you set up, and, and the reason behind it. Well, the reason is because uh, when I was a young it, uh, you know, there weren't all these resources available. And now, you know, part of it for me is one, to be able to give back to people, to be able to make sure that I give back all this information that I've got through the years. You know, I was, you know, I didn't play at the university level. You know, to a certain extent, I had to go find my own path. You know, I did that through learning from so many different people and having so many different mentors. But, uh, you know, part of it for me is just making sure that I share the game back with people. And then the other part, again, is that, uh, you know, someone told me once, and I don't even remember where the quote comes from, but uh, what's the point of dying with all this knowledge in your head? So, <laughs> you know, I want to make sure that, um, you know, I had a resource where I can put it out there. And, you know, and again, you know, through hopefully this path that I'm on this year on my sabbatical and through the next few years, continue to give it, uh, you know, out to as many people as possible. Awesome. So I paid for it. I used it for a while with my team, and I have a ton of questions. So first Good. off, uh, BDT, Basketball Decision Training, what is that and tell us about it. Well, Basketball Decision Training has evolved, basically it started 20 years ago with my research, uh, you know, when I did my, and then the National Coaching Certification Program, the Level 4, and, you know, I was exposed to some really good coaches and I was exposed to some really good concepts through, you know, the different professors I had and uh, one of the key concepts was Joan Vickers decision training and it was this concept of skill acquisition that uh, you know basically we look at learning in terms of uh, a lot of blocked practice where I teach someone a skill they repeat it over and over 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 and over and then you know eventually they've got to learn how to apply it in a game and you know I think what what you know I learned first through Joan Vickers and through many people since then is that uh, you know that's not the way the games played and really BDT evolved from that research and then from my time spent with Massimo Antonelli who's a basketball coach from Italy who does a lot of stuff through music he calls it music basket and uh, you know he uses beats and rhythms and different things like that to be able to teach and you know some of the concepts that I got from him and uh, you know meshed together with some of the research and it became this basketball decision training and uh, simply what it is is uh, it uses cues and signals as the passer to be able to get the decision maker, in this case the shooter, to be able to make decisions while they're working on their game. And, uh, you know, it goes with my other philosophy, which is mixing training, where we don't train one skill in isolation, but rather we mix a whole bunch of skills together in our training. And the challenge for all of us as coaches is to incorporate decision training and making that realistic. And that's what basketball decision training is attempting to do. Yeah, so can you give me one example of a drill that incorporates BDT? 
The easiest uh, one to explain is, again, basically you're the shooter and I'm the passer. And, you know, in a traditional behavioral training approach, it's I pass it to you, you shoot it 10 times in a row, and then we switch. Well, what we learn is that's basically useless in terms of transferring to performance. You know, the first three, re three repetitions, you have to think a little bit. But beyond that, there's not much engagement from you. And there's clearly no engagement from the passer who's just mindlessly passing. So the easiest way to change that is, one, to have you moving your feet prior to receiving a pass from me. And two, when I do pass it to you, I give you a series of signals where you have to make decisions. And the basic ones are, if I put my hands out in front of me, then you pass it back to me. If I have my hands down, then you shoot. If I step towards you, then you drive. And there's a whole series of about 10 different decisions that uh, you know I've come up with to be able to cue you as the shooter to be able to make decisions. And then you know with that, you know there's 10 different decisions, different cues, 10 different decision cues, but even more so, there's, you know, as you know, whatever you run on offense, you can incorporate this in anything you do. And uh, I think that's the beauty of it is that, you know, even though the concept is something that kind of has evolved from, you know, what we've done and what I've learned, it's now something that you as a coach can take and say, well, how can I use this? And it becomes yours. And, uh, you know, the best drills are the ones that are most obviously relevant to what your team does. And really, the best drills are just a breakdown of what your team does as well. So, you know, adding this to it adds another dimension. Yeah, so I can test to this. I really love the shooting drill because instead of just two people and then they just fall into a zone and they just zone out, even the passer is having fun now because their goal is to screw up the shooter, right? Yeah. So um, another question is zero seconds, this concept of yours. Tell us about that. Well, again, zero seconds is probably just a rebranding of, you know, a concept that so many coaches talk about, and that's being able to play without a pause. And, you know, there's a certain mentality that I think exists more so in the North American game than it does in probably Europe. But, you know, we see it. I mean, so many good teams like San Antonio Spurs, Golden State Warriors at the highest level, you know, they play in this philosophy where they try not to pause. You know, they want to be ready on the catch to be able to make a decision without a pause and we don't want to slow the game down to be able to jab or shot fake or do something that way we want our players to be immediately prepared to be able to shoot it on the catch or based on a read of the defender to be able to attack or make an extra pass on the catch uh, in that sense I'm not really a believer in triple threat I'm a believer in one threat and the first threat is catch it and shoot it and you know with that confidence becomes hopefully a better basketball player who's not just catching it to pass and really again my players have been the ones that have taught me you know through the years of recruiting and through the years of coaching and through the years of you know obviously observing the game I mean I just find still too many pa too many players catch the ball to pass the ball and not enough really catch it ready to be able to make a decision on the catch and that's where zero seconds comes into play that there's no pause no predetermined movement and the, neither the coach nor the player are going to remove their decision to be able to shoot the ball. It's going to be the defensive player who's going to determine what they do. And they really focus on, on the read of the defender. And, uh, you know, again, for me, the transfer has been really giving our players a, a, a confidence level to be able to be, be able to play with freedom. 
which is another big part of our philosophy is that ultimately we want our players to be free and remove the guidance of the coach, especially the coach that's on the sidelines yelling at them, go there, do this, pass there, you know, shoot, 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 you know. I don't I want to I want to be able to sit down as much as possible and let our players make decisions with freedom. So BDT and zero seconds is great, but my personal question is how long does it take before players actually get accustomed to this? It's, it's, it takes a while for them to start thinking. You know, and it's true. I mean, and the research says exactly that. And, you know, I think that's why it's been such a difficult concept for coaches to buy into to a certain extent. Like when you do something like block practice, even for a player, if I block your practice and you shoot 10 in a row, yeah. you're going to feel pretty good if you're yeah. a good shooter because you're going to feel like, hey, I made, you know, I made seven, eight, nine, you know, of 10. But what we've learned is that doesn't transfer as well to performance. And, uh, you know, that is the, the leap of faith for coaches and the leap of faith for players to be able to understand that, listen, you're going to make more mistakes. You know, sometimes it's going to look ugly. Sometimes there's going to be challenges in terms of you fighting through and fighting for your learning. And, you know, but through all that, ultimately, you're going to retain it more. And the analogy I use is that of, you know, you've taken a test before. I know you're a good student back in your day, <laughs> some of your, uh, your former, uh, former friends back in university. But uh, when you study for a test, there's those tests where you just memorize and regurgitate and yes. throw it back up on the paper. Well, you don't retain that. But the ones where you mix and loop and have to constantly fight for your learning, those are the things that you retain better. And that's the concept that comes into play. And, you know, you're a coach. You, you, know, you have to sell this to your players. You have to sell it to a certain extent to your administration or to your parents or, you know, whoever's involved to be able to understand that, when they watch you practice, it's not going to look perfect. Mm. And that's hard for coaches because, look, I could do the three-man weave all day and we could get really good at the three-man weave. But ultimately, what is that doing for our performance? Yeah, so does this apply? You've coached at all different levels, high school level, college level. Can this kind of like games-based, non-block practice also work at a higher level? Well, I believe so. I mean, I think, you know, since we've really – I mean, I, I've – basically followed a games approach to coaching for a long time but really we've committed to it over the last four years at the University of Windsor and you know we we basically only practice four on four or five on five that's it we do no other drills now we'll do some individual stuff at the beginning as a pre-practice or a post-practice and then we'll mix in some two balls three shooters which is a simple kind of competitive shooting drill within within the body of practice so we get some shots up but Otherwise, we, we compete. We set the condition. You know, if we're working four-on-four four, wing ball screen, then it starts at a four-on-four four wing ball screen. And then we play trips from there, whether it's three trips or five trips or something like that. And then we teach within the context of the game. And, uh, you know, I think that philosophy, which started earlier, has meshed perfectly with this basketball decision training, this BDT concept, which brings that individual stuff back to decision-making as well and making it more game-like. So uh, I, you know, again, through Breakthrough Basketball especially, where I've been very fortunate to be able to work with such a great organization, but I've been able to go out through North America and work with, you know, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, on up to 18-year-olds, and kind of, you know, incorporate this and try this with that age group. And I tell you, there's a few things. One, athlete satisfaction. Players seem to like it. Mm. You know, you, know you, you can comment maybe on mm. that too, but players seem to enjoy it because, again, it, it, it's not mindless. They seem to be engaged with each other. And the fun for the passer is they get to try and screw up the shooter. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's the part that we really sell is, listen, I mean, part of this game is once it becomes competitive too where you start to keep scores, 
you know, the pastor really starts to be able to get into it a little bit. Like, yeah, like you're not, you're not trying to get them to do it perfectly. Mm -hmm. And I say that from my job as a coach too. If we left a practice and my players had done everything perfectly, then I didn't do my job as a coach because mm. I've got to find a way for them to struggle because mm. that's how reach and grow as players. And, you know, we sell that to their teammate that you're helping them and you're an active participant in their learning. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that tends to be a thing at all ages that tends to transfer in terms of them feeling more, more empowered that they're coaching and it's mm. not just me doing all the coaching. And that comes back to the concept of freedom. So, um, you know, it takes patience, mm. you know, it takes consistency, mm. uh, but uh, and for a lot of coaches, a leap of faith. But uh, I encourage people to look at it and uh, you know examine it from their perspective about how they're incorporated, and hopefully, again, it'll benefit many coaches in terms of helping their players. Okay, so this leads on to the next topic, which is uh, the importance of practice planning. And I know on your website, there's you actually gave a lecture on the importance of practice planning and optimal practice time and how you should schedule it. So tell us about that. Like, as a beginner coach, um, why should I plan? Why, why can't I just show up and wing it? Uh, and, you know, how should I approach it? Well, uh, you know the answer. You definitely don't wing it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's one of my favorite parts of coaching is planning practice. And, you know, I, I love putting so much, so much time and effort and energy into figuring out what we can actually do within a practice that can help our team develop? And that is always the question. And, and I start all planning from what to coach and how to coach it. And I ask that question constantly in all of my planning, is what am I gonna coach and then how am I gonna coach it? And those are two very different questions, but uh, you, know, you know if you're gonna work on your, you know, your offense today, what's your decision? We have so many different ways to be able to break it down. You have so many different ways to be able to teach it with and without defense that you know you've got to make that decision about how you're actually going to get that information to your players and what's going to be most effective in transferring to competition because I know as coaches we spend so much time within a year on stuff that never happens in a game and either through our fault or through you know our a fault in kind of our process of teaching it to our players you know ultimately it still comes back to us as a coach in some way that we're not we're not getting something transferred to competition. So all my planning starts with that. And then, you know, from there, the simple concepts are how long do you want practice to be? You know, I encourage coaches to not have a stereotypical time. Because, I again, mm. from learning from players, mm. if they know exactly how long practice is all the time, then they become more active clock watchers oh. than, than they do actually, you know, engaged participants. And, you know, I really do, and I, I mean, that's one of the reasons we call the site basketball immersion is when I coach, I want my players immersed in the process of learning as well. And, uh, you know, so, you know, to give you an example, Keith, if you, if you make a great play in practice, you make a behind the back pass late mm. in practice it leads to, you know, a layup or, you know, you, you make a great extra pass that leads to an open three, you know, then we'll find a good way to end practice. Say, all right, that's it. Great. Not getting any better than that. Let's go. You know, different <laughs> things like that. You know, and then at the same time, hey, sometimes there's got to be some hard coaching involved. And, you know, I don't mean be an idiot to your players, but, you know, sometimes you got to make the end of practice more difficult and more challenging. And, uh, you know, we'll constantly search for different ways. You know, I say, uh, you know, as a coach, it's, it's your job to make sure that your players are ultimately never, never comfortable within a practice, but that their comfort 
evolves into the game. And it's mm -hmm. a challenge because those are two very polar opposite things. And, uh, you know, you got to find a way to be able to balance their confidence with obviously the optimal challenge. Um, Duration-wise, I mean, as I said, it varies a little bit, but because we practice four and four, five and five, mostly I find our practices are shorter than they used to be when we did a lot of drill work. And uh, you know, I've been able to watch a lot of practices in my time, and I think there's just a lot of wasted time. And the other main concept that I think comes through through that practice planning is uh, that concept of time on task, which is how much time are your players actually physically playing basketball. Now, I don't mean, you know, five and five. I mean, how much time are they actually engaged in playing the sport? And you know that from your phys ed class that, you know, sometimes your phys ed classes would be an hour long, but, you know, there'd be 10 minutes of the uniforms, getting in line, taking attendance. There'd be 10 minutes of the phys ed teacher lecturing. And then there'd be maybe you play the game for 10, 20 minutes, and then you're cooling down, and then you're showering. We only spent, you know, within that 20 minutes, maybe I only touched the ball six times. You know, or I was standing in a drill, and coaches do that all the time. Like, there's a drill, and, you know, we have everyone down at one end, and there's 12 players, and, you know, only two players are actually involved in the drill. And, you know, what amount of time are they actually physically practicing is a huge, huge challenge, I think, for coaches. And it's something that we really spend a lot of time on focusing on our players getting as many reps as possible. And within a camp setting, that would mean that every player has a ball as much as possible, mm. you know, rather than, you know, someone being involved just standing in line you know, because those things take away from uh, learning time and uh, you know the other thing is coaches love to hear themselves talk <laughs> and you know we, we love to be short with our communication yeah. we love to again teach the drill teach what you're gonna do let them get into it and then stop it and teach the skill But if you teach everything all together then again you're gonna talk a lot longer mm. than I think would be necessary normally and you know, we tend to stop within the four and four, five and five, and maybe I should state that that within the four and four, five and five, we stop every mistake, and we correct mistakes within the four and four, five and five. But you know, again, we're correcting it within the context of the game, so we feel that it transfers better to performance. So on the small side of games, I'm always interested to know what coaches changed in terms of variables. Is it the court size, number of people? Like, give me an example of a couple of the games that you play four and four, five and five. Well, we change, you know, we change the variable. Yeah, we change what we're working on. So again, like we might start the form for, I'll give you a whole bunch of examples. And look, coaches have been doing this for years. I mean, coaches, the shell drill, you know, mm -hmm. is, is a staple of all mm -hmm. basketball practice basically that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. So we just take stuff like the shell drill. So it'd be like, okay, today we're going to work pass and cut, form four, mm -hmm. pass and cut. Or we're going to do, you know, form four, up screen, down screen. Mm -hmm. All we're saying within what we do is that we don't do anything where it's a walkthrough. Mm. We do it right from the get-go where we throw mm. them in the deep end. And if they're going to struggle, we're going to coach them while they struggle. Mm. But the hard first instruction ultimately helps them learn it mm. and retain it better over the long run. So most of my, again, if you want to call them drills, are just things that we need to work on. And mm. it can even go even more specific you're working on scouting report. We've got to mm. play, you know, we've got to play someone that runs a high ball screen. Mm. Well, we'll play four and four high ball screen, or we'll play five and five ball high ball screen. But once we're done that repetition, I don't know what's going to happen because mm. we'll do the four and four high ball screen, but then we'll play three trips of the court, and those three trips mm. is going to be, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. 
maybe we create a condition, hey, if you don't have an easy score, then you go into ball screen and you flow. But we can constantly add variables or conditions to them to be able to focus them in on what we're doing. And then the other part of that is you're always got to coach offense and defense at the same time. Mm. You know, and you know, that's where hopefully you have assistance and that's mm. hopefully where you have good people involved. But at the same time, I mean, I, I just find that more relevant because whatever situation happens, whether I'm coaching the defense or I'm coaching the offense, it's helping both. Because if, if we're saying on defense, mm. no paint touches, like no penetration in the paint, no passes in the paint, you know, no cutters in the paint that catch the ball, and that happens, then clearly that's a good thing for the offense. Mm. So at the same time, one thing's bad for the defense, the other thing's good for the offense. Mm. So I think both, both things become really good teachable moments you know, for both your offense and defense in terms of one needs to improve and the other one did a good job. And again, where does that take you? It takes you to pretty good competition you know, in terms of what we're trying to do every day in practice. Yeah, so you mentioned earlier that there's stuff that people do, drills that don't translate to games. So people love to know what not to do. So tell us examples of what not to do in practice. Well, again, I mean, uh, I, we can start with the simplest one, which is the three-man weave or the five-man weave, five-player weave, I should say. But, you know, that doesn't, in any way, I've never seen a player or a team at this point in basketball come down the floor and weave with the pass. Now, you could make an argument, and there's a simple thing as, as a coach, let's look at it from, okay, does this ha actually happen in the game? And if it doesn't, then find a way to adapt that if you really like the drill and find a way to adapt it to say, okay, this is what actually does happen in a game. Well, maybe it's rebound outlet, one hit ahead across court, and then we're scoring. Well, there you could convince me that that has more of an application in a game. Or maybe it's something that a three-player dribble weave. Well, maybe you run dribble weaves. But again, I always say come back to what do you do? Like what are you trying to do on offense? And if what you're trying to do on offense is somehow incorporated in a drill, then that drill is way more relevant than just something that, again, hey, you know, there's so many shooting drills that we see. Let's say you run, you know, 12 players at one end and you run some type of replacement cut shooting where a player cuts to the ball, catches it and shoots. That player who passes cuts to the ball, catches and shoots. Well, okay, great. Great shooting drill in and of itself, but there's no decisions being made. And the only variable really is that they're moving. So how can we make that better? Well, from my perspective, we could add a coach or a player under the rim with BDT. Uh, we could incorporate something different, obviously, in terms of saying, okay, when they catch it, you know, what type of decision do they have to make relative to a teammate? So maybe we put a teammate in the corner or, you know, again, from my perspective, we just go make that three on three. Three on three pass and cut is way more relevant. Uh, again, I don't, I apologize if I'm stealing the quote from someone, but I definitely am. But someone once told me that the best shooting drills are one-on-one, -on -one. you know, and I totally believe that, that the best shooting drills are one-on-one. -on -one. You know, there is certainly, and again, let me come back and qualify that, initially in learning, there is some value to some block practice, you know, because it gives them an initial representation of a skill. But after that, there's really not as much value in terms of transferring to a game. So another thing what not to do, in my opinion, is 5-on-0 offense, 5-on-0, you know, 5-on-0 inbound. Uh, I, again, initially, you teach the set maybe 5-on-0, 
But after that, if you really want them to make decisions, then you need to do it within the context of having defense there. You know, because otherwise, how are they ever going to play against another team? You know, and it's even better. Let me give you a better way of doing that. Okay, if you really like 5-on-0, go 5-on-0, one trip of the floor, and then come back 5-on-5 five five against a defense that's waiting. Mm -hmm. And now, as a coach, you can coach the defense to be able to change how they cover something every time as well so that the offense doesn't know what's, what's going to come their way in terms of the defensive coverage. You know, um, again, we would do that just 5-on-5, five five, three trips, but we do initially in learning do, do some stuff where it's 5-on-0 there and come back 5-on-5. Five five. But we always have to have that 5-on-5 five five context. Um, you know, a lot of drills, again, where there's too much waiting in line, the relevance of drills, um, you know, I could probably put a whole list together, but, uh, you know, magic trick drills, you know, and I know you know what I'm talking about, you know, those, 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 those drills that basically look really cool, but there's no application. There's no application to the game, you know, and the YouTube is littered with those, and I'm not even anti, hey, you know, because if you're going to really train a lot, and you're going to love basketball, hey, then go have fun. You know, invent some stuff where you have some really fun, you do some wacky stuff, and, you know, you, you really kind of connect to the joy of kind of just doing some really fun stuff. But, but at the end of the day, from a coach perspective, I'm trying to do everything that's relevant to our players improving in a game. Um, another one which I wrote a blog about is, you know, the zigzag drill on defense. Uh, yeah. yeah, and again... You, you can argue that's a good defensive drill, and that's not really even my point. I, it's a horrible offensive drill, in my opinion, because I would never want a ball handler to ever think that they're zigzagging ever up the floor. You know, we want them to play in straight lines and attack with change of pace and different things like that. But, you know, I even go farther to say, you know, and I, my, whole, my whole youth was played, you know, basically zigzag drill. Mm -hmm. That's basketball for me. Zigzag drill and suicides, and uh, suicides would be another one. Any type of running like that. I just think there's some really good ways to do it, and our two best conditioning drills are, uh, I think both of them are on the site, but I know the one is, which is Italian three-on-three, three, mm. which is basically, you know, it's, it's chaos. I mean, if you do that with 12 or 15 players, they're, they're tired. And then the second one is basically a four-on-four type of uh, fast break league where it's just continuous, you know, up and down, and, uh, you know, if you have, a, you have a small team, you have a small roster, they're going to get conditioning out of that, and... Uh, we like to condition while they play, and that's another reason why we do a lot of 4-on-4, 5-on-5 in practice, because we don't have to worry about trying to simulate a game. We're playing a game. All right, so this is sort of a tough question. Um, as a, let's say, a high school beginner coach, um, how much time should I spend on team drills and how much time should I spend on individual skill development? Like, is there like a general rule of thumb or no? Well, no, there's no rule of thumb, and uh, you know, and, and uh, I'll be honest. I come from this because I get asked this question a lot, and I come from it first from the perspective that you need to understand who your best players are, and you know, in a youth coach setting, that's one of the hardest things. And I've been around that at the university level too, as an assistant coach, where the worst players get coached more than the best players. Mm. And if I'm going to approach that question that you just asked me. The first thing I'm going to do is decide what do my best players need to be able to improve. Now, you look at that and say, okay, well, what about your least talented players? Well, here's your grouping of least talented players. You've got, maybe, let's say there's six talented and six less talented. 
Well, of those six less talented players, maybe three of them, no matter what you do, aren't going to work to the level you want them to, to get better. But the other three, because they're being shown how difficult the skill is or how, you know, being coached to the highest level, that they actually raise their game and improve more. And in my philosophy, I'm going to decide what my best players need. And if my best players need really focused individual workout, then we're going to spend a lot more time on an individual workout that's going to help them get that next level skill that's going to really help them. And if it's more of an application in terms of a team, then we're going to spend more time on that. But uh, as a general rule of thumb, I mean, for our approach, we do pre-practice, which could be 10 to 15 minutes, and we do post-practice, which could be 10 to 15 minutes of, of you know, zero seconds basketball decision training stuff. But within the body of practice, I mean, it's all, it's all team. You know, it's all team stuff. But again, in my opinion, team stuff is still individual development, and that's what we can't lose sight of. When you teach with a games approach, even though you're focused on the tactical more you know, than the technical, we still do a lot to be able to help our players technically by giving them a lot of individual feedback about their decisions that they're making or clearly about their use of a skill and saying, hey, listen, what was your thought process here, Keith? Should you have, you know, did, did you, do you think you have a different decision here? Do you think you could have done something different skill-wise here? And then I want you to think and engage yourself in that thought process of saying, what could I have done better or what could I have done differently? But uh, clearly, again, it varies according to the skill level of your players. And that's why I say that your best players, you know, if your best players aren't very skilled, then you've got to spend a lot more time on skill, you know, because yeah. ultimately if they don't get better. We're not getting better. Yeah, I guess I got to quote one of your quotes in the video. I might be slightly off, but as you mentioned something about it's easy to bring bad to good, but it's really hard to bring good players to become great players. So your philosophy is to pick the good ones and make them great. Absolutely. Because I think ultimately that impact on your team is way more. But I also think that impacts those not great players more. If they really want to get good, that will impact them more because it gives them something really to reach towards. You know, as opposed to, again, if I just coach to my lower levels, my, I'm losing I'm losing 50% of my team. Mm. If I coach the higher level, I think at worst I lose 30, 25% of my team. You know, but it doesn't matter. Those players, again, I'm not trying to be cruel, but those players aren't going to help us win anyways. Those players aren't going to help us develop anyways. You know, and you know, I guess it's that old, you know, business principle of you know the 80-20 principle, right? Mm. You know, and I know you know that that uh, you know. It's that type of concept, maybe you know, maybe a little bit in reverse and saying that 80% of our team is going to improve and 20% isn't. It's going to improve as much, you know, and uh, you know, we, all want, we all want to feel good as coaches. So I think sometimes coaching your least talented player, you can make more of an impact and make yourself feel better that, hey, they've really improved. But how much does that improve your team? You know, and... Uh, you know, that's something that I would say to youth coaches to say, hey, look at that perspective and decide how that fits into your philosophy. Okay, so that brings me to another question is that you obviously have a lot of knowledge um, and, you know, but I also know that you, you weren't like a pro player or like a college player, you're self-taught. So for someone aspiring to become as knowledgeable as you are, it's quite intimidating. There's so much information, don't know where to start. Basketball emerges is one of them, but like, how do you teach yourself and how does a beginner coach gain basketball knowledge? 
Well, I can imagine if I was starting as a young coach nowadays, how intimidating it truly would be because I know how much time you can spend on the internet. You know, and I'm fortunate, and that's another reason for basketball immersion is I'm a full-time coach. So I can I can take the time to watch, you know, an hour of video, you know, of Allison McNeil teaching decision training on the FIBA, FIBA website and summarize it for people because I have that time. But I know that for as, as young coaches or you know, just as coaches generally in the community or youth coaching, you don't have that time. Coaching isn't your full-time job. So it's definitely a challenge. And, uh, you know, the hope is that basketball immersion helps people, you know, save time and focus in on what's really necessary to be able to help themselves develop as a coach. But, uh, you know, as a young coach, I mean, I'll tell you, the number one thing for me was there was no limitation on my mind. And I always approached that, you know, all my learning that way, that anything I was really passionate about, if I wanted to be more effective, then I could find a way to learn it. And at that time, it was hanging out in the library, you know, actually.